0: You are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast from Movement is Life, a series of conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. Today, I'm discussing health disparities with Sasha Dubois. Ms. Dubois is the incoming National Black Nurses Association Secretary and the inaugural Mairead Hickey Leadership Fellow in the Department of Nursing at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you for having me. Let me start by asking you this. We know that Boston is a quite racially segregated city. So what types of health disparities are you aware of? And also, do some citizens find it hard to access care services at Brigham and Women's Hospital?
1: Yes, it is a racially segregated city and it's been that way for as long as I can remember. However, I think like most cities, most major cities in the country, we are experiencing gentrification. So the access to health care really is harder because people are moving outside of the city so that they can afford uh, quality housing. So with people that normally lived in the city, the system was set up that we have four major level one trauma hospitals in the, in the city that are literally within five miles of one another. And a lot of those hospitals have community health centers. And so you could go maybe take a short bus ride or arrange a ride to go and, and get quality access to care and the same physicians and, and nurses that worked in those hospitals would also work in the community. So those are really accessible However, if people are being displaced outside of the city, what does that mean for them? Then that's where the disparities come. So it's almost like there's a healthcare access desert.
0: Wow. In a city such as Boston with, like you said, so many options, Mm -hmm. but yet now people have been forced out and don't have that same easy access to that care.
1: Yes. And as far as the Brigham, I will say they're expanding into a lot of the suburbs because they realize that people have a hard time coming into the city. And it honestly, doesn't matter what color or what creed you're from. Um, and I think they're really working to look, to look into some of those cities, into some of those neighboring uh, communities where it's harder to come into the city because I, I only live 10 miles out of the city. If I'm driving in the morning, it takes me an hour to get to work. So imagine somebody that's ill, that's coming in to be seen, possibly have surgery, has multiple appointments, has to pay to park, even if it's discounted, even if it's free, then, ha- then they have to find something to eat, then they have to go back home. That's a lot, that's a lot on somebody that's already experiencing you know, an illness. I'm I'm well and I know I have to mentally prepare myself even for the ride, whether it's a train or whether I'm driving. So what they're really trying to do is establish medical homes. So really going out into the community, Locally, in in the Boston area and beyond, so that way you can have surgery out in the community. You can have your primary care visit there. You can have physical therapy. You can basically get everything that you need, and you don't have to come into the city or into, like, the mothership hospital. And the thing is, if you really are acutely ill, then that's when you would end up coming into the city. So a lot of times people will say... And, it doesn't, and it's not even limited to Massachusetts people that, you know, are snowbirds. When they know they're really sick, they, they say, I'm flying back home, take me to Boston. So even if they're 30 miles away, they like, we got to go into Boston. That's how they know that they're really sick. But a lot of times we're, we really try to encourage people to stay in their
0: communities. Wow. So that sounds like at least one effort, the establishment of these medical homes to help eliminate some of those social determinants mm-hmm. of health that are contributing to these healthcare disparities and you know that's access. Yes. So that sounds like a great thing. Yes,
1: and we have an entire center that's dedicated to patients that have multiple comorbidities, um, multiple issues with access that also contribute to the social determinants of health. And when a patient is admitted that's under this program, they have a flag in their system. They have acute care plans. So that way, whenever, whenever a provider meets them, they know exactly how to care for this person, especially if they have maybe some behavioral health needs. Because if you're seeing someone that comes in all the time, they present all the time, if you're not familiar with them, you're, you might be enabling their situation. And then they get upstairs and they're, they're admitted, and they get up to the nursing staff, and they're like, oh, we know them. Why did they get this downstairs? You know. So that way the patient gets complete in direct care and that way they they are at a at a lower risk for developing disparities and also you know decreasing any kind of judgment and they already know, they can come in and say, this is what my prescription is, this is what I know. And they know they have these acute care plans. So it's not like they have to tell somebody their story all over again, because that's part of the problem, especially when you have a chronic illness. And these, um, these centers that we have are managed by uh, care coordinators, social workers, nurses, Every you know, so that way they really understand what it means to take care of a patient. And their job really is to keep patients out of the hospital, keep them from being admitted. That's great. And checking on them and making sure they're making their appointments and why not? And, you know, reading their notes and seeing if they're not showing up for appointments, what else is going on? Are they they able to make it to to their appointments?
0: Why not? Right. Those social determinants of health that we always still have to be, you know, very cognizant of. Mm -hmm. I understand one of your roles is to engage clinical nurses on the importance of magnet designation, something that only 8% of U.S. hospitals currently earn. Could you talk a little bit about the Magnet Recognition Program? And would you agree that this framework for nursing excellence maybe could also contribute to the elimination of healthcare disparities?
1: Yeah, so we actually already reached Magnet status. Um, we're, we're very excited we reached it uh, last year. We're, we're really just flying high on it. Our organization has over uh, 3,000 nurses And it really was a wonderful undertaking. Obviously, it takes years to build the infrastructure. But once we knew we were on the Magnet journey, everybody pretty much just pitched in. Uh, Clinical nurses would go to forums that were just centered around Magnet. And then they would take that information and that that energy back to their units and, and, and basically like infect the other nurses and saying, look at all the wonderful work we're doing. Did you know this other unit two floors up is doing this work? And how can we, you know, how can we show off all the great work we're doing? Because every unit has a unit-based practice council that works on um, initiatives that improve care on their specific unit because we tend to have service lines so if you work on an orthopedic unit how can you get your patients out safer how can you get them to walk how can you get them to not have falls when they go home how can you not have them to have falls when they're in the hospital and these are some of the things that you know, you think about as a, as a nurse because you always want to remember what does the patient need. So a lot of times you'll have this practice council nurses from every shift will come together and talk about some of the struggles that they have when they have to take care of patients and then they find out what the common problem is and then they work towards fixing that. So process improvement in the name of patient care, uh, just having it be a great collaborative place to work between all all disciplines and really everyone being patient-centered, it's fabulous. When I was uh, an off shift nurse administrator during this magnet journey, I would walk around with an associate chief. So what we would do is, um we would walk around, have a tray of cookies, and have a theme that centered around our standards of practice or so our nursing practice model and highlighted something every month. And then we, we knew what units we were going to go to, and we would say, Did you realize this is what you're doing? This is actually in the magnet application. So then we would show the staff that the work that they were doing was actually put into an application that other people were reading and seeing the great work that they were doing. So that way they knew they were contributing to something and it was really really fabulous. Um, We went to the magnet conference last year, we had, oh my goodness maybe 130 nurses that went. I mean, people were like, who's working at the hospital if all of you were here, you know? But <laughs> it was great. it was our first designation and, and, and the hospital was really, really supportive of us and everybody just had a blast and was really proud to work there and really proud to be a nurse.
0: Does that nursing excellence include
1: things like cultural competency? Cultural competency, um, understanding disparities to healthcare, understanding access, um, because we are literally in the, in, in, a, in the middle of a city where a lot of folks use that as a community hospital, so we have to understand some of the things that they are gonna need. Um, we have a lot of veterans that hang out around the hospital and a lot of times they seek a lot of emergency care. Uh, we also, also on the other side, are surrounded by some very affluent communities and what needs do they have? So people have those different social determinants of health, but when they come in, they may look like they have one different package, but they have a whole host of needs. We also have, um, you know, unfortunately, because we do live in the city, there there are violent things that, you know, patients experience, so we have to understand what are the needs of those patients that need that acute care, you know, whether it's while in life or if they don't, you know, survive their inju- in, um, injuries. Also considering, too, we're a level one trauma center, so we get burns, we get you know, horrific car accidents. We get construction, you know, mishaps. We get all kinds of things that people are rolling through those doors and they're getting the worst news of their lives. And how, as a caregiver, as a, as an administrator like myself, how are we caring for each other so that we can care for these patients? And how are we teaching people the right things to think? Because people are going to have their unconscious bias, but how do we prevent that from... Uh, transferring over into how a patient is treated. We actually have a great HR department that teaches a class on unconscious bias and they teach it like every month. This woman named Leanne Croset, she's fabulous. And I don't know a single person that has said, I'm I'm not really feeling this class because everybody realizes they have their their, their own bias, whether they like it or not. You know, people say, oh, I'm not racist, but you may not like old people, and you don't realize it. You know, so everybody knows, everybody realizes that they have some kind of uh, bias, and
0: realizing that is the first step. Right, yeah, that unconscious bias is, you know, so important for people to have that self-inner reflection and realize that we all bring some stereotypes and some, uh-huh. you know, preconceived thoughts and notions about others that we're not even aware of. Right. That because we bring to the table. Yeah,
1: people have their own experiences and I can't. I can't knock somebody for the experience that they've had because they've ne- they haven't walked a mile in my shoes. I can empathize with them, but if they're hardened based on an experience, maybe they had a bad experience, or maybe they've gotten the same kind of patient and they've they have caregiver fatigue from that. So, how do I, as an administrator or as a nurse director, say, okay? We, we need to understand where you're disengaged and how do we get you to be reengaged because the disengaged nurse is a very dangerous thing. And the disengaged nurse really will impact how a patient receives their care and also what their caregiving experience is.
0: I understand right now you're working on a research project to understand the experience of your colleagues at Uh, at Brigham and Women's Hospitals in relationship, in relation to diversity and inclusion. Yes, so we... What's what's your research telling you so far?
1: So we actually um, presented our work. We presented our work at uh, our hospital's uh, Brigham Research Day. So clinicians from across the hospital, doesn't matter what you are, physician, nurse, social worker, PT, it doesn't doesn't matter. Um, We had digital posters posted up in public areas around the hospital. And we were able to... uh, do this research and then we we're actually able to disseminate it here at the national conference and basically what we found that is people loved and do love working there but when you see certain hiring practices or when people don't have that unconscious bias training or are unaware of their preconceived nurse notions for for staff of all kinds they just want to feel like they need to have a place to belong. And if you're a staff member of color or nurse of color, because we also interviewed um, aides and like secretaries, like unit secretaries, if they feel like they're the only one on the unit, it's not that that's much of a surprise, but how are you feeling included? Dr. Dawson always said that, you know, diversity is, you know, being invited to the table and then inclusion is being asked to dance. And she says that and she also includes, she also compares it to, you know, a quilt versus a tapestry. A quilt is diversity and the tapestry because there's so many interwoven fabrics is inclusion. So how do, how do you really make a unit inclusive for everyone? Because you have competing preconceived notions, unconscious bias, then you have, you know, the staff groups, you know, the physicians versus the nurses versus the aides versus the unit coordinators. And really, we we all need to
0: lean on each other because the job won't get done. So we have a few minutes remaining. So for my last question, I'd like to ask you, how do you think we can get patients more involved in eliminating disparities?
1: I think getting them involved is it. I think being paternalistic to patients is why patients don't become involved. Um, you know, my mom's a boomer and a lot of times I'll talk to her about healthcare, and she'll say, well, I'm just going to do whatever the physician says. And I said, but what if that's not the best thing for you? But she, you know, that's, that's learned behavior and breaking that or unlearning that, is the hardest thing. I think for patients and for caregivers as well. I think for nurses, you know you know that you know what your patient needs, and yes, it's your responsibility to drive their care so that way they're not there in the hospital with you because the longer they need to be cared for, that means the sicker they are. Um, However, there are some ways that you can do it. So um, when I was a clinical nurse, I started doing research with my clinical, uh, my nurse, my unit-based practice group with Patty Dykes, and there were a couple of units that she did pilots on. And we were interested in decreasing patient falls. So instead of saying, you know, oh, go around every two hours and make sure the patient's toileted and check in on them, and then you trade off with the PCA and do all these things. In reality, it's n- that's not that realistic because something happens. There's an emergency. You get behind on your meds. Someone needs to go to a test. and. You you really want to be able to speak to the practice and you want to be able to have some truth into it. So Patty really worked on, uh, it was basically like a laminate poster board with the staff and with the patients and she did focus groups and the nurse would go have the board on 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 the patient wall. So the patient, the patient were laying in the bed, they would be able to see it, you know? So then in every... Every part of the of the board had a different has a different color and you'd circle it with a dry erase board and say, This is what you need to walk is a cane. Please don't fall. Didn't have too many words on it. And you would talk to the patient and say, What do you need in order to get out of bed? And if you did it if they obviously if they couldn't speak for themselves, obviously you would talk to their family member or you would use historical information, but that helped the patients stay involved in their care because then they would look at it and say, oh, wait, I need to call for the nurse or I need to call so I don't fall. And it had great, great, great outcomes for patients, decreased falls, decreased falls with with uh, injury. And I think being able to meet the patient where they're at is how we're going to start to decrease right. those disparities. And that that research project, we were able to write a paper about it, actually get it published in the Joint Commission Journal. It really it really opened my eyes and
0: helped me to understand you really have to meet people where they're at. You have to meet them where they're at. Absolutely. You really do. Well, great work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the health disparities podcast from movement is life. Please join us for new installments every two weeks by subscribing at Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google. You can also find us at www.movementislifecaucus.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again.